You might recognize some of those pictures. It's from that great movie, It's a Wonderful Life. There's that scene where George Bailey comes home Christmas Eve, and he's had the worst day of his life after what he considers a lot of bad days in his life. $8,000 is missing from the accounts at the savings and loan. The bank examiner is in town, and George is depressed and upset, facing, as he put it to Uncle Billy, scandal, bankruptcy, and maybe even prison. And when George gets home, his family is busy decorating for Christmas, and one of the daughters is practicing the same song over and over again on the piano. In their Christmas excitement, the other kids are trying to get their dad's attention, and finally in his frustration, George says to his wife in the kitchen, you call this a happy family, why do we have to have all these kids? <laughs> yeah, well, the 127th Psalm tells us the purpose for having kids, for having children. Look at verse 3 of the 127th Psalm. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, this doesn't mean that couples or people who do not have kids are not blessed of the Lord. As you know, God blesses us as his children in a multitude of ways. The, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As God's children, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Everything that God has for us in Jesus Christ, he has lavished the riches upon us, of his grace upon us. It doesn't mean that someone who doesn't have children is not blessed of God, but what Psalm 127 is saying here, that children are a gift. They are a gift from God. They're not a possession. Children are entrusted to us by God for a particular purpose. And we see that purpose implied in Psalm 127, if you look at, at verse 4 again. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, I don't know what makes for a full quiver. You know, when Jan and I first got married, I, I decided I would study this. I'd take my Bible and I'd look and say, okay, how, how, how much is a quiver full? And some of the scholars said 12, 12 arrows. And some said six. Well, that kind of made sense to us. Six sounds like a, a good number. So when Jan and I were first married, we thought a quiver full would be six. That, so that's what we planned upon. Uh, we didn't know that we'd have two adoptions that would fall through and some miscarriages and, and other things. But we discovered that three wonderful children filled our quiver quite, quite nicely. But this passage gives us the purpose for having kids. The purpose for having kids, and liken them to arrows, the psalmist give us the purpose. The purpose for having kids, the reason you are given children is to make an impact for the Lord. Yeah, that's not quite in focus, is it? No, it's not in focus. Not in focus. To aim them for life at targets that are pleasing to God. To make an impact for the Lord, to aim them for life at targets that are pleasing to the Lord. Now, to understand the purpose of bringing up children, we have to understand what the psalmist means by the arrow and what the psalmist means by the warrior. First, there's the arrow, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, if you picked up an arrow and looked at it, you'd find it has two ends. Now, this is very basic. 
It reminds me of the great coach Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers where the team wasn't doing very well during a game and got him together at halftime and he picks up a football and says, gentlemen, this is a football. Let's get right back to basics. What is this thing for? Now, one of the arrows has a sharp point and the other end has feathers, which is called fletching. And the sharp point determines the impact that the arrow is going to make. And, of course, the feathers, the fletching, is its guidance system. You know, it's the way that going through the arrow, the arrow, air, and the, the feathers keep it on course as they, they pick up the wind at a, at a particular way. Where the, when the arrow is released from the bow, where it goes and how it impacts and where it impacts is dependent upon determined by both ends. Now, in the simplest sense, we could say that the point in referring to children as arrows is their sharpness. It's their mental development. It's what they have learned and how they know how to apply it. It's their, their education. It's what they know. It's the life experiences that they have had. It's, it's what they know of God and it's what they know of God's word and how to apply it to their life. In particular, it's, it's all those things that would help them make a maximum impact with their life in this world. All those things that God uses to make an impact for the kingdom of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and for God's glory. The other end of the arrow with the feathers is the fletching. This is the guidance system. It determines where the arrow is going to go. When it is released, the fletching keeps the arrow on course. Now we could call the front end of the arrow mental development and the other end the fletching moral or spiritual guidance or character or integrity or even wisdom. It's those things that guide us through life. Those things that are the foundation of the decisions that we make. The, the front determines the kind of impact that the arrow is going to make. The rear determines the direction and the point of, of contact where the arrow is going to hit. Remember when the shepherd boy, David, stood before Goliath? Goliath had been coming down into the valley of Elah, Elah day after day. And on one side of the valley, there was the army of the Philistines with all their meanness and ugliness. And boy, if you ever seen any of the, the descriptions of what armies looked like in those days. And on the other side, there was King Saul and the children of God. And day after day... Goliath would come down into that valley and he would mock the children of Israel, make fun of them, make fun of King Saul, and he would make fun of God, taunting the army of King Saul. Goliath had no fear of the arrows and the spears of King Saul. But when David stood before Goliath, even as a shepherd boy, Goliath didn't know how sharp David was. And he didn't know what kind of guidance David had received from the things of the Lord and only took one shot from the sling and one stone to hit Goliath in the forehead and bring him down. One shot. But when we think of arrows, if the front of the arrow is not very sharp, even if it's on target, it just makes a dull, a dull thud. And it can only irritate the enemy at best and at worst it invites the mockery of the enemy is that your best shot? You see, Saul's arrows, as it were, were not very, very sharp. Goliath wasn't afraid of those. But even the sharpest of arrows can go off course and be dangerous. How many arrows of children are released only to cause pain? 
destroy the wrong targets, dangerously boomerang. Even the sharpest of arrows, if it goes off track, becomes a very dangerous thing. How many arrows of children are released only to inflict hurt? You see, parents, you have to work on both ends of the arrow. You want to aim them at life at targets that are pleasing to God. You don't want them to go off course. You don't want them to destroy the wrong target. Or if they hit the right target, to only hit with a thud that makes no impact for the kingdom of Christ. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be digging more deeply into the God's Word as we study how to work as parents and grandparents on both ends of the arrows that have been entrusted to us. But for now, we need to understand two actions that we must take as parents and grandparents. And the first is, arrows must be shaped and sharpened. Arrows must be shaped and sharpened. Now, in Solomon's day, when he wrote the 127th Psalm, you didn't go down to the local sporting goods store and buy arrows. Neither did you find them lying around on the ground. Sticks aren't arrows by nature. They have to be carefully shaped. They have to be carefully sharpened. And children are the same. And this implies work. A lot of work. Derek Kidner insightfully writes, it's not untypical of God's gifts that first they are liabilities, at least responsibilities, before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they are a quiverful. I really like that. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they are a quiverful. And all the kids are going right now, I'm going to be all a handful I can be, right? No, that's not, that's not the point of that either. Children don't grow into straight, sharp arrows by being left to themselves, being left to the TV set, or left to their smartphones. It just isn't going to happen. It takes diligent effort on the part of wise parents to bring them up in the training of the Lord. And secondly, arrows must be aimed and released. Arrows that are left or shot haphazardly in any direction aren't much good. In fact, they can cause great harm if they're not aimed carefully. It implies skill and direction on the part of the archer. The archer must know his target. He must know have sufficient skill to fire the arrows into it. And also related to this, the point of rearing children is not to keep them for ourselves. We must release them. I remember years ago when we were in Alco, Nevada, and I think it was a Mother's Day, and Jan was down in the the nursery taking care of the kids in, in the nursery and I, I preached a sermon on Moses when love lets go when love lets go because the mother had to let Moses go you know at some point you have to release all of our kids you know and, and I didn't mean it this way but all the moms were coming downstairs to pick up their kids and they were all in tears <laughs> wasn't a great mother's day <laughs> but there is a time you know from the very beginning we are letting go and releasing our kids in certain areas and other ways carefully and purposefully because one day we have to let them go because we have to release them, if I can put it this way, so that they will be burning arrows for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we come to the warrior. You might recognize Braveheart on that. <laughs> the archer, the warrior who shapes and aims and releases his arrows. And there's two key passages of Scripture, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, that turns our attention to the warrior, the father, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. 
And the first is Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we already read this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the fourth verse, page 215. The sixth chapter of Deuteronomy is so basic. It's so essential for application. And I think we read this passage at least once a year, maybe, maybe twice. Because this passage tells us as dads, as warriors, what we are supposed to be doing. The passage is called the Shema in Hebrew, which means hearing. It comes from hear, O Israel, the Shema. This is what Moses wanted the children of Israel to hear, to heed, before they went into the promised land. Verse 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. It's supposed to be the most natural thing in the, the world and in the Lord to speak of the things of God to our kids. When we go about our daily routine to be shaping and aiming our kids, it's to be natural, but it's also to be intentional. I emphasized the word you and your throughout this passage when I read it. Who is the you? Who is God addressing here? Who is this passage aimed at? It's aimed at the parents. It is especially aimed at the fathers who are the head of the home. This passage is not aimed at the church. It's not aimed at the schools. It's not aimed at educational establishments. It's aimed primarily at fathers. It's not even aimed at the church or Sunday school or Awana. It's aimed at the fathers and the parents. Now, the church has some great responsibility, and we are taking that responsibility very seriously here at Grace Baptist Church, but primarily it's aimed at fathers. Fathers, teach your sons. Mothers, teach your sons, or generically, teach your sons and your daughters. And the problem is, and I'm speaking mostly to dads here, Dad, we are letting other people steal our arrows, and they're getting away with it. They're getting away with it. The frightening thing is a lot of people in this world want to direct your arrows. Determine their sharpness. And this brings us to the New Testament passage in this regard. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, page 1433 in your Bible. The sixth chapter of Ephesians, the fourth verse. Chapter 6 of Ephesians is right after where we left off last week in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. After writing about the role of husbands and wives, verse 1, he talks about children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 6, he addresses fathers again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Who is supposed to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? The fathers. The father is the primary archer who shoots the arrows. Now this doesn't mean that our children are not going to be released or taught correctly if there's not a father in the home, okay? Eunice and Lois are mentioned in, in the New Testament. A godly grandmother and a godly mother who released Timothy. 
Uh, Timothy's father was Greek. We assume he, he wasn't a believer. Maybe he wasn't even very present in the home. And, and, and Timothy was released and became a spiritual son of the Apostle Paul as he was released into the world and into ministry. Paul had no children of his own, but he discipled Timothy, Titus, Silas, Priscilla, and Aquila, and many others. Now, moms may have to take on the primary responsibility in the home. If there's an absentee father or a father who's not a believer or one who is just simply A-W-O-L in his responsibilities and, and the mom will have to depend upon the support and help of the church and, and godly people and, and those who come alongside. But dads, fathers, now I'm speaking to you again, we must bring up our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the phrase the, in the Lord does not mean this. That we make sure our kids get to Sunday school, we make sure they're in Awana, and they sit through a church service. That's not it. The phrase of the Lord means we are raising our children or rearing our children as God rears his. We are to bring up our children the same way that God brings up his children. That's what it means to bring them up in the Lord. We are to treat our children the same way God treats his children. Therefore, the whole Bible becomes a textbook on rearing children. And then when they are in Sunday school, then when they are one, and then when they are in the church service, they will see how this works with everything that, that mom and dad are trying to do. Because the way we are to respond and act and discipline our children and love our children is the same way that this whole book, the Bible, God deals with his children. But the question is, how can you do it of the Lord if you don't know what is of the Lord? How can you speak of the things of God when you're in the car together, when you go fishing together, when you're sitting at a ball game, when you don't know what the things of the Lord are? And if you don't know what the things of the Lord are, then someone else is aiming your arrows. And back to Psalm 127, it gives us a specific application. 127 Psalm again. Verse 5 it says, How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. The gate. What is the gate? When this psalm was written, the gate was the place of political and civil power in the community. The elders would gather at the city gate to discuss the issues of the city, much the same way that our city councils do today. Now, it was more informal during the time of the psalmist, but whoever had the prestige, whoever had the influence, whoever had a voice of wisdom or political clout would gather at the gate. We talked about Job, the man of suffering in Sunday school this morning, and, and Job is a good example of a man who possessed godly influence in the gate. So turn to the 29th chapter of Job. Job is right before Psalms, so you don't have to go back too far to find it. Job chapter 29, 29th chapter of Job at verse 7, page 618. In the 29th chapter, Job is reminiscing in his suffering and talking with these friends who came to help him about the influence that he once had. And verse 7 of the 29th chapter of Job says this, verse 7, he says, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The old men arose and stood. 
The princes stopped talking and put their hands over their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to their palate. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, I gave witness of me. Verse 12, because. Why? Why this response of respect to Job at the gate? Why did people think and say to themselves, I can't say anything because Job knows. Job has the wisdom. Job has the influence. If I say anything, it sounds stupid to that great and godly wisdom of Job. Why? Verse 12. Why? Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. And I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me and my what bow is renewed in my hands. Job had influence in the gate because he had a bow and he had arrows and he was willing to use them for God's glory. He did all of these things. He was eyes to the blind. He was feet to the blame. But we, we see that line in verse 13. The widow's heart sang for joy. What, what's that all about? Now picture this, guys. If you were a man in that day, and you were dying of some infirmity, and you were leaving your wife and kids behind, and you were concerned about the prospects for your wife and kids in a hostile environment, you could call your wife to your dying bedside and say, it's going to be okay. Why? Nobody's going to take advantage of you. No one will be evil toward you. Why? Because Job sits in the city gate. Because Job. That's a bow with arrows and influence. Not just Job's, but his son's who he had aimed and directed to God's purposes for life. Now there's another kind of impact that we want our arrows to have. We want them to have impact in the city gate. We also want them to have impact for and towards God. We dads are to speak of the commandments of our God with our children. We are to teach our children when we sit down, when we rise up, when we walk along with them. We are to plaster the things of God all over our home. Why? The answer to that is in Psalm 78. Turn to the 78th Psalm, Psalm 78, verse 8, page 703. We've been to this Psalm several times as well. I want us to look at verse 8 to begin with and kind of back up in the text. Psalm 78, verse 8, because this verse contains the other side of things that has the side of arrows misdirected. Verse 8. That our children not be like their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that had not prepared its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. A generation whose heart was not prepared, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And then look at verse 9. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows. 
yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law, forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had, had shown them. Here was a generation whose heart was not prepared, whose spirit was not faithful to God, a generation whose arrows went all over the place with no moral direction. Does that sound like America today? Yeah. Verse 7 then gives us the goal of parenthood. We've come full circle in this. This is your goal. This is the direction of your arrows in in verse 7. That they, that's our children. They, everything you want for your kids is in this verse. Everything that God wants for your kids is in this verse. That they, verse 7, should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That is the supreme goal of parenthood. That they should put their confidence in God, not forget the works of God, but keeps his commandments. How do we know that our children are going to be loyal to God when they are released? How do we know that when they face the giants of life and struggle and temptation and, and suffering, how do we know they're going to put their confidence in God, that they won't forget the works of God, that they will obey God in spite of their circumstances? It's because they have been taught the things of God. Verse 4. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. We will tell our children. We will teach them. Verse 5, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Verse 6, That the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, Verse 7, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. As dads and moms, as grandparents, we have to do whatever it takes to keep our arrows and in some cases, get them back. Get them back. As a church, we need to do whatever it takes to teach moms and dads and grandparents what it means to work on both ends of the arrow. We need to disciple parents and give them the necessary tools and show them how to use them in raising their kids as God raises his. And this is all promotion here again. It's not too late to come to our series this evening. We're exactly halfway through effective parenting in a defective world. Now, one of the neatest accounts in Scripture is the narrative of Noah and the flood. You just got to love the story of, of Noah and the flood. There's, there's a little bit of humor. There's some tragedy. There's human frailty as, as well as faith. And, of course, the arrow stealers today will tell you that Noah never lived. There wasn't any such flood. You know, one of our favorite things when we're traveling, we go to one of those historic or national monument sites is, you know, we'll be 14,000 feet above sea level, and they'll say, this used to be a big lake, you know, or something like that. It used to be all underwater. You know, I, I came across the thing a few years ago. Uh, they found over 500 gigantic fossilized oysters, and these are big. And you can find some very similar to these in Green River, Wyoming. And they've been discovered 13,000 feet above sea level. In Juan Calavica province, approximately 250 miles southeast of Peru's capital city, Lima. Now, it takes more faith to believe that these giant oysters crawled over two miles up a mountainside 
<laughs> than to believe that they were deposited there by the deluge, the flood of, of Noah's day. The Lord Jesus was convinced that Noah lived. Did you know that? The Lord Jesus spoke of the flood as an actual event in person in Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus even compared his second coming to the days of Noah. He said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Be just like that. You know, Jesus believed Jonah lived, was swallowed by a big fish. Jesus believed that there was the flood. Of course he would believe that. But I got to thinking about this. Have you ever wondered how Noah got his wife, his three sons, and their wives to agree to get on the boat with him? Have you ever thought about that? That's a good question. No one in the whole world believed Noah except his family. And this is such an important event in history that Jesus and Peter and the writer to the Hebrews all said, in essence, getting on that boat, getting on the ark, is the same as salvation in Christ today. That if you get on that boat, if you get on that ark, it's the same as what we consider salvation in Christ today. The flood, the ark, Noah's faith is a picture of our salvation. Getting on the ark, it says, is the same as going through baptismal waters. In other words, we could say the application today is, how did Noah get his kids, his children, and their families saved? Parents, grandparents, this is the time to sit up in your chairs. Because this is the most important question to ever ask as a parent. How do our children get saved? That is the main priority. Well, here's Noah day in and day out building an ark for 100 days. Probably looked very similar to this. Can you imagine what this project must have looked like to his sons? There's dad out there building a boat. No sails, no propulsion system, propulsion system no oars. And did you know that the Bible says that it had never rained on the face of the earth up to that point in history? Never rained. The world had never seen a downpour. Genesis 2.6 says, But a mist used to rise from the earth and the water and would water the whole surface of the ground. It was just kind of a greenhouse effect. It was, it was misty, and, and once in a while it would precipitate and, and, and water the ground. And that's why there had never been a rainbow up until after the flood. Up until Noah's day, the earth was like a big greenhouse. Nobody had seen any rain other than that mist. No big thunder clouds, no flash floods, no, no rainbows. And Noah and his sons are out in the middle of nowhere on dry ground building a huge boat for 100 years. And there's all these people coming out of the corrupt cities and asking, what's that guy doing? He's building a boat. A boat? Where is he going to sail a boat that big? And can you imagine the ridicule that went on? How the friends of the sons of Noah responded? You know, if, if your best friend came and made fun of your dad, how would you feel about that, guys? Well, well what does your dad do for a living? What's his hobbies? Well, nothing. What does he do all day? Well, he builds this boat. What's he going to do with this thing? Well, he's going to bring all the animals two by two and put them on the ark, and God is going to cause it to rain for the very first time, and there's going to be a worldwide flood, and the waters will rise, and the whole world's going to be wiped out. In other words, all the sons of Noah had to go on was dad's word for it. 
Dad's word for it. The Lord says. The Lord told me. That's all they had. But there was something that backed up that because the sons also had Noah's life. His life. If I told my sons we're going out south of Boise into the mountains, mountain home desert, and we're going to build a big spaceship, and I'm going to work on that thing the whole rest of my life because God told me to do it, and we're going to take all the animals two by two, we're going to take them to another planet because God said so. Do you think my sons would go just because I said that's a good thing to do? They'd probably want to up my medication or have me put away, <laughs> Right? We have a saying around our house, we're going to get you some real help just as soon as we can afford it. But why didn't Noah's sons go? Because Noah had a life that backed up his word. His sons knew that they could trust their dad in anything and for everything. Not only did they have Noah's word for it, they took his life for it. And that's what we want our children to do as well. Moms, dads, grandparents. Can your children take your word for it? And can they take your life for it? As we aim them at targets that are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the example of the godly men and women that uh, we have seen in your word this morning. And, and I know as dads right now and as parents who in this world, we, we're overwhelmed, Father, from the, the temptations and the stuff that this world is pushing on our kids and, and how the world and people in the world, they, everybody has their idea of what our kids don't need to be and where they're supposed to go, what they are supposed to believe, Father, and it's, it's, it's just all lies, Lord, all lies, but it's, it's so powerful and in many instances so, so compelling. Father, I pray that the arrows that you have entrusted to, to our families in this church and the arrows that we have some influence on through Awana and other, other things and ministries that we do as a church, Father, I I pray for these kids, and I pray for the parents, and I pray that uh, you would protect them and, and put a shield around them. And even as we saw in our study of Job this morning, Lord, there was a, a time before Satan came into your presence, and, and you said, have you considered my servant Job, where, where Satan even said, well, you've put a hedge around him, Lord. I can't even touch Job. And Father, I pray for that right now too, Lord. You would put a hedge of protection, a sphere around our families and around the children, Lord, that we might have the ability to raise and nurture them in the admonition and the instruction of the Lord. And for this we pray in Jesus' name.